We continue this morning in our series on what is the church, and we've heard so far from Daryl and from Kip and Lance and Nick and Wes successfully showing us from Scripture what, that we are the people of God, the body of Christ, the household of God, a flock, the temple of God, uh, and today we'll hear that we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So please turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we'll read verses 14 through 16, and you'll find that if you use, use the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 992, or you can follow along. I think it'll be up on the screen as well. Here now from God's holy, inspired, and life-giving word. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the living God, church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for calling us into your presence, made possible by Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf when he died on the cross. We thank you that you've called us into this household, this church. We ask that you would show us this morning how we can live out our calling to be a pillar and buttress of the truth in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, among family members, and wherever you would lead us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our flocks group is reading a book by Neil Plantica entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin. And in case that word breviary is new to you, it was new to me when I first read the book. It simply means a brief summary. Plantinga open, opens the first chapter of his book with these words. In the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a, tra tra a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along the streets that seem progressively darker and more de deserted. Then the predictable bonfire of the vanities nightmare, his expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck. Before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then, just in time, the tow truck shows up, and the driver, an earnest, genial man, begins to hook up the disabled car. To Tuff's protest, the truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than, it was, than what it is here. Plantinga lays out in his book the problem that shouldn't surprise any of us in our world, not the, that our world's not the way it's supposed to be. We shouldn't have wars destroying lives and livelihoods. 
We shouldn't have poisonous drugs on our streets easily accessible. We shouldn't have people confused on their true identity. We shouldn't have people canceled over differences in worldview. You don't have to read too far into the news or social media to realize that we're in a broken world. One, and one of the major problems leading us down this path is that people don't know what is true anymore, or even if truth is a meaningful concept any longer. Andrea and I have been in uh, college ministry for more than 25 years now, and as we've talked to students over the years, we've come to realize that there, uh, there's a crisis of meaning out there that's prevalent among young people today, and it's only becoming more evident as time progresses. What prompted us to move from young professional ministry into college ministry is uh, shown in the scene above. Hopefully it'll be shown in the scene above. Yeah, there we go. I saw these young guys in Geneva, Switzerland while we were on a mission trip. And I apologize for the blurriness. We didn't have smartphones with 50 megapixel cam uh, cameras back then, or we didn't even know what a megapixel was back then. But one guy is uh, smoking a cigarette. Another guy has a dog collar on, something that was popular back then. All of them are the product of the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, under whose statue they're sitting, and who promoted ideas like the inherent goodness of humans, the idea that we should just act how we feel. He was an early pro proponent of rugged individualism. And appropriately enough, his statue stands on a man-made island. We're seeing his philosophy play out in our day, and it's not good. Paul's time wasn't too dissimilar from ours. He wrote to Timothy in a city, the city of Ephesus, which was a major metropolitan city, much like ours. It had a main attraction to, that was a temple to the false goddess Diana, or Artemis. Timothy was overseeing a church infiltrated by false teachers who were bringing dissension and causing people to depart from the faith. And on top of that, it seems that Timothy was a timid man with a weak stomach. Paul spent an extended period of time with the church of Ephesus as he did the church in Corinth. He desired to come back to visit them, but he writes today's passage that if he was delayed, he wanted them to know how they ought to behave or conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. I mentioned that we'll, uh, <clears throat> we'll take the passage out of order this morning, so uh, let's start with verse 16 which addresses this idea, what is the truth that we are supposed to uphold? Paul in this verse connects godliness with a poem or a hymn that briefly explains what tru the truth of the gospel is. Paul connects godliness to the gospel of Jesus. I, Howard Marshall, and Philip Towner, in their commentary on the pastoral epistles, define godliness as a strongly Christian concept of new existence in Christ that combines the belief in God and a consequent manner of life. The idea of godliness is the consequent result of becoming new creation, which Paul addresses to the church of Corinth when he writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Godliness is the reality of new creation emerging in the life of the believer upon hearing and trusting the gospel. Paul summarizes the gospel in a six-line poem. You could call it a breviary of the gospel. He's, he writes, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, 
believed on in the world, taken up in glory. John opens his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he continues later in the chapter, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God was manifested. He took on human flesh. He tabernacled among us, or templed among us, revealing the glory of God, full of grace and truth. Don Carson, in his commentary on John's gospel, connects this to God's appearing to Moses in Exodus 34, when he revealed himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Carson makes the connection between God's steadfast love and faithfulness and the faithfulness uh, to Jesus' coming in grace and truth. He says, grace is the demonstration of steadfast love, which we call hesed love, and faithfulness is the revelation of God's truth. The gospel is revealed in Christ's incarnation. Paul continues, he is vindicated by the Spirit. He writes in Romans chapter 1 regarding this, that Jesus He says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' resurrection was was his vindication. It was the vindication of all the claims that he made as he uh, lived his ministry. And Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the sinless God-man, took upon him the sins of of us and gave gave us his righteousness in the act of redemption. This is a great exchange. That's what redemption is. Paul continues that he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Witnessed, he was witnessed by angels, he was proclaimed, He was believed on. He was taken up in glory. That's our hope. This is our hope that we have as followers of Jesus, that we too, though presently justified and in the process process of being sanctified or made holy, will be taken up with Christ in glory, just as we sang this song earlier today. So that's the gospel in a short, poetic, but richly packed verse. This is the truth from which the church are to be pillars and buttresses. So why the imagery of pillars and why buttresses. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Paul was writing to Timothy in Ephesus, the home of the temple of Artemis, a temple that had 127 pillars in it within its, uh, within its roots, holding up, holding up this roof. Pillars were pretty common, a pretty common sight in first century, uh, the first century culture there. The church was and is to be a pillar of the truth in a world of competing ideas and their competing temples. A small group recently finished studying, the, uh, studying Genesis 1 through 11 in the account of the people's descent from the garden just before Abraham came on the scene. There is another pillar that is built. It's called the Tower of Babel, a tower or a pillar that the serpent would have been very proud of as people attempted to exalt themselves to the heavens to make a name for themselves, fame that was spread throughout the whole region. Rousseau's ideas wouldn't have been, weren't the first to come up with this new invention. He wasn't the first to come up with this idea of 
living your feelings and making a name for yourself. Excuse me. As Wes mentioned last week, God created man in his own image and likeness and commissioned Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, to spread the borders of the garden throughout the earth. They are to rule and have dominion over the creation. Instead, as we're reminded, the serpent introduced chaos back into God's orderly world and the descent of man began. Rather than spreading God's name and image, humans are bent on making a name for themselves. We are skilled tower builders. We're skilled at building our own pillars. Paul here reminds us that we are to be a pillar, upholding the truth of the gospel in a world of opposing ideals and idols. The other word Paul uses that, uh, is that we're to be a buttress. That's how the ESV translates it. It's also translated as support in the NASV or a bulwark or a foundation or a ground. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. And it has a, uh, comes from the, the root word that means firm, immovable, and steadfast. We, the church, are called to be immovable, steadfast, and firm in our upholding of the truth of the gospel. Another way to, uh, that we could view this is related to two particular pillars that were in the temple. There are two pillars in the temple of Jerusalem that were unlike the others in that they were symbolic in nature rather than structural. They didn't support the roof. There were the only two in the temple that were named. They were named Yachin and Boaz. The name Yachin means he will establish and Boaz means in his strength. And Jewish scholars called them pillars of witness as they stood at the entrance of God's sanctuary. They had over 100 pomegranates on each of the capitals and garden imagery on them, reminding us of the garden from which we've come and the garden to which we're going, as we were reminded last week by Wes. Given their names, they were both pillars and buttresses, established by God in his strength and established by God and in God's strength. The church has been established by God and strengthened by his Holy Spirit, and we're called to be witnesses to lost people around us, upholding, supporting, proclaiming, and defending the truth of the gospel. Now, I don't know that Paul was thinking of these pillars when he wrote uh, to Timothy, but I wouldn't be surprised either, given his understanding of the Old Testament. I mentioned at the beginning that I was handling the passage out of order, and here's why. In Kurdos, we like to remind ourselves that we're studying scripture, understanding that indicatives always precede imperatives. Now, if that isn't a enticement to come and see what we're doing in Kurdos, I don't know what else I can tell you. Let me explain though. Indicatives, what are they? Uh, well, an indicative is what indicates, what God indicates about who we are. It's what the Bible tells us about who we are as God's people. We don't have time to go through it this morning, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul writes one long run-on sentence describing who we are in Christ. Three times in that, he says, we are to the praise of the glory of, of God. We are to the praise of God's glorious grace, he writes. It's one long indicative sentence, and it's amazing. It's worth memorizing. It's worth committing to memory. Who God has made us to be to the praise of his glorious grace. The indicative, though, always precedes the imperative. So what's the imperative? Well, think about it this way. It's imperative for you to do dot, dot, dot. It, it's something that we 
must do. It's something that you, you it, it's a command. It's a necessary and important thing that you must do. So to sum up the idea, who we are in God, uh, who we are, who God has made us to be, informs how we ought to live, how we are, ought to conduct ourselves. So what's the point? Paul writes in his letter, so that if he's delayed in coming to them, they would know how they ought to behave or conduct themselves in the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. God has made us new creation and we're called to conduct ourselves accordingly. Paul uses two additional descriptions that help us to understand how we ought to behave. That is the household and the church of the living God. First, the household imagery. And Lance gave us a, a wonderful explanation of that a few weeks ago, of what it means to be a part of God's household, what it means to live in God's household. Most of us grew up in households that had a certain rhythm and pattern to them. You may have heard your parents say when you were younger, that's not the way we behave in this family. You know, I see nodding heads up there. Or in this household. There were, and for many of you today, there are certain expectations that you have for your household. Andrew and I have had the opportunity to be in different households over the last few months. We've had Kurdos meetings at the Hinkle household. We've had flocks meetings at the, at the household of Brooke and, Brooks and Emily Walker. We've had elder dinners at the Karstens. We've had dinners at the Wires. Uh, recently, we stopped by the Winesman's house. They just recently moved into our neighborhood, and uh, the boys promptly invited me to play something called shinny hockey. Uh, they're, thankfully, they were gracious enough to let me just observe and not play, because shinny hockey is played on your knees, on a carpet, and it's, it's hockey. So <laughs> you get the point. But as we sat and talked to Mark and Liz and Andrea held Jonathan, Timmy, while walking by me, patted me on the shoulder, much to Mark's shock. He looked at me and said, did he just do what I thought he did? But as much as Mark and Liz made us feel welcome, that pat on the shoulder cemented it. And that's what we're to be as, as God's household. We're to be people that are welcoming. Last week, there was a new family here that sat a few rows ahead of me and ahead of us, and I always make an attention to introduce myself to new people. But by the time I got up to them, they were surrounded by people. I couldn't even get to them. So that's, I, I commend you, Grace Church. That is the way the household is supposed to be. I'm thankful for this household, and I'm thankful that you live up to the standards that God has, has called us to. Paul also calls us the church of the living God. Remember that down the road from Timothy was the temple of a not-so-living goddess, Diana. We also live in a world of competing truth claims. There are more than 4,000 different religions with roughly 85% of the world's population identifying with one of them or another. People want to know that there is truth, and if so, they want to know what that truth is. For many years, I, along with a few others here from Grace Church, uh, met with an interfaith group at College of DuPage that included Muslims, pantheists, Baha'is, Catholics, Hindus, and many others. And one of the founding members of the group, a guy named Nate, a philosophy student with no particular religious affiliation, one evening uh, looked up at me and said, I'm looking for meaning. I'm trying to figure out what gives life meaning. And over the course of the following years, Nate and I continued that conversation until he left for uh, 
to study his master's degree out in San Francisco. And even after that, he called me one day when I was also in California and, and said, I'm still searching for meaning. Nate is representative of a lot of people around us that have that same search. And we as a church are called to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We're to be a pillar and a buttress to the gospel truth to them. From where, uh, <clears throat> as I engage with college students, though, uh, for many years I went on to college campuses and I engaged students with, uh, and, and faculty and others in, in gospel conversations. And as I did, there's a few questions that I would start off the conversation with. First one was, from where do you believe people derive meaning for their lives? And how about you? Where do you derive meaning for your life? The second question was just as important. Do you believe that truth is meaningful in our day? Do you believe that there are some things that are right for all times and all people and wrong at all times for all people? Or do you believe that truth is defined by the individual? Both of these questions are important to answer as we engage people in the gospel. Why these questions? They came to me from many conversations over the years that led me to believe that many are like those young guys under Rousseau's statue, trying to make their own name in life and finding out it only leads to despair. If there is no, as Francis Schaeffer called it, true truth, we are without hope. Paul, citing Isaiah, says it. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It feels like um, if, if this is all life has for us, is if we have to figure it out as we go along, then as Paul said earlier in Corinthians, we are most to be pitied. Yet, as Paul concludes in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what was Paul's bottom line to Timothy, the church in Ephesus amid false teachers promoting controversies leading to envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction? What is his word to us today, this morning, as we live in the midst of cancel culture, wars, economic turmoil, family division, and even church strife? Paul writes to Timothy, to the church of Ephesus, and to us this morning, at Grace Church of DePage. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is blessed and the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Paul breaks out in doxology in his final words to Timothy. Paul is urging Timothy in the church of Ephesus and us today, this morning, to live out new creation, to live out this new creation life as a witness and a defense of the gospel, the good news. 
that made life possible for us and can make life possible for those to whom he brings into our lives. And Paul urges Timothy and us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Brothers and sisters, we we have a high calling and a great God. He has called us to this church to be a pillar and a buttress to the truth in a lost and dying world. We do that every Sunday as we gather in the household of God, the church of the living God. We participate here week after week, reflecting the order of creation in a disordered world. We proclaim the truth of the gospel amidst a world of conflicting claims. We fulfill the greatest commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're called into his presence each Sunday and we respond with rejoicing. That's what Nick did this morning. He welcomed you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what each of us as elders do each Sunday. And we respond with rejoicing and thanksgiving for what he has done. We come confessing our sins as we did a few minutes ago, knowing that we're still part of a fallen world and are affected by its allurements. We receive the word of pardon graciously, extended by our Father through his Son and by his Spirit, which happened just a few minutes ago. And again, we respond with joy at pardoned sin and restored relationship. We gather under his word, hearing from his appointed servant, with anticipation for what God will say to us. We gather at the table of the Lord, remembering the great sacrifice that has allowed us to be there and anticipating the consummation of all that God has planned for us as he takes us up in glory. We gather as a church in communion with one another and with our gracious God. We gather as a pillar and a buttress of the truth, proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. Finally, we're sent from here as pillars and buttresses of the truth into a world that remains in darkness, shining our light as God shined his light to the people as they went through their exodus wilderness, their exile wilderness. Grace Church at Page, we have a great calling and a great God who has called us. May we rejoice and be glad in it. As I mentioned, we'll, we gather at the table of the Lord in this part of our service, remembering Jesus' death and resurrection and looking forward to his return. So let me invite the elders and the musicians back up as we uh, gather for the communion service. And let me close us in prayer as we do. Father, we thank you again for calling us into your presence, your household, your church, a pillar and a buttress of the truth in a lost and dying world. We're thankful that Jesus, to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth, restored this commission established first in the garden to make disciples image bearers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, that through it he will be with us always to the end of the age. We gather now at your table in remembrance and to proclaim these truths until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.